0: Evidence and Answers. What do Muslims believe? Do you have friends or family members that are Muslim? How can you reach them for Christ? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is a popular teacher, speaker and author in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In this episode of Evidence and Answers, Pat will be interviewing former Muslim, now a Born Again believer, about his conversion and the process it took. Here's Pat with today's guest, apologist Nabil Qureshi, with part 1. First Peter 3:15 states, "But in your
1: hearts set apart Christ as Lord." Always be prepared to give an answer, an apologia. That's where the word apologetics comes from. To everyone who asks you the reason, the logos, the well-reasoned answers for the hope that you have within you. But do this with gentleness and respect. The Bible commands us to be prepared to provide reasons for our faith in Christ to those who are seeking and questioning. Welcome to Evidence and Answers, where each week we provide compelling reasons for faith and hope in Jesus Christ. Today we have a special guest with a fascinating story of his journey from Islam to faith in Christ. Nabil Qureshi was raised as a devout Muslim in the United States. He grew up studying Islamic apologetics with his family and engaging Christians in religious discussions. But one day he met a Christian at his university who, after one such discussion, the two became best friends and began a years-long debate on the historical claims of Christianity and Islam. Well, he's here to tell us his journey. So, Nabil, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Nabil, you know Islam is one of the fastest-growing religions in the world. In your opinion, what accounts for its rapid growth today?
2: Well, there have been some studies that have been done on that. The Pew Forum did a landscape survey within the past few years. And also, anecdotally, you get an understanding of the growth rate being primarily by birth rates. Muslims are generally more fertile, producing more children. But also, you have some conversions. A, a survey that was done a few years ago said approximately 30,000 people in the United States every year except Islam and a lot of that has to do with marriage people wanting to marry one another some of it has to do with the active what's called dawah uh, people being invited to islam kind of like an islamic form of evangelism so that accounts for almost all of the growth of islam around the world
1: well nabil what is it then that attracts people especially in the west what attracts them to this religion
2: you know a lot of it has to do with community if you don't have a good, solid community, and you see the way Muslims come together, a lot of Muslims actually pray the five daily prayers in congregation, as they're supposed to. They'll come together every Friday, and, and there's a real sense of solidarity when people pray the five daily prayers. If community is one of those things that you're looking for, then in Islam, generally speaking, you can find that. And so that's drawing a lot of people to Islam. And like I said before, some of it is through marriages. So a lot of young women are falling in love with Muslim men. We see them converting to Islam. I know at least a dozen personally who have done that. And so that accounts for the large numbers Islam does have an appeal to it, uh, and we need to be aware of that. Very mystical appeal, especially for people who also are drawn to discipline. Islam can be very appealing. So we combine these things, community, discipline, and also this mystical appeal, and that's what's drawing a lot of people.
1: Now, what is the goal of Islam according to the teachings of the Quran and the Hadith? Why is it that Christians should be equipped to engage their friends and family members in the religion of Islam?
2: Well, as we've seen already, Islam is growing, and immigrants are coming by large numbers. A lot of refugees are coming to the West. I believe the United States allows for 50,000 refugees to come every year, and most of them are coming from places plagued by war and corruption. A lot of those are Islamic nations. And so in order to embrace the fact that we are called by Christ to reach out to our neighbors, we need to be equipped to understand what Islam is, Now, that doesn't happen just by reading books, it doesn't happen just by an academic study. It happens by being willing to go out into our neighborhood, meet with real people, and find out what their life is like, what their concerns are like. And in so doing, we can engage the Muslim next door, not just a theological concept, but a real person with real needs, and tell them about Christ.
1: Now, tell us about your background, and your family, and how you were raised.
2: Well, my mother was the daughter of a Muslim missionary. So her father, uh, in, in fact, her family is from Pakistan, but her father was a missionary in Indonesia. And so she was there, and that's where she was born. That's where she was raised till the age of 10. Very, very devout family. Her mother was also a missionary kid born in Uganda. So on my mother's side, very, very devoted practice to Islam, even the missionary side of things, and my father, He was a 24-year veteran of the U.S. Navy. He came from Pakistan in the mid-'70s, joined the Navy when he got here, and has given his life to serving the United States for those 24 years. And also a very devout Muslim, very kind, gentle, self-sacrificial man. So those are my parents, and then I have a sister who's older than I am. All devout Muslims would, in a heartbeat, uh, tell you why they practice and follow Islam and that they love it.
1: Now, what do you mean by a devout Muslim, and how would that differ from, let's just say, a a nominal Muslim?
2: That's a very good question, and it's important that we understand that. So many people in the West, by analogy, call themselves Christian. If you take a survey, approximately 80% of people in the United States call themselves Christian. Now, what is a Christian? How would you classify a Christian? I would say that anyone who's actively claiming to and following Jesus is a Christian. But if you have someone who just takes the title Christian, that's not really a a good indication of what they believe and what they follow. Same within Islam. You have Muslims who will take the title, have the heritage. You know, to be honest, though, most Muslims who take the title Muslim are more ready and willing to defend their heritage than the average Christian who's nominal. But that said, a devout Muslim family will be praying the five daily prayers, will be reading the Qur'an regularly and teaching their children how to recite the Qur'an. They'll be learning what Muhammad's life was like and uh, trying to follow his life. So that's the difference between a cultural Muslim versus a devout Muslim.
1: Now as an American Muslim, how did your childhood compare with your Christian friends?
2: Well, the majority of Christian friends that I had were Christian in name only. Uh, If you asked them what they believed, they'd say, Oh, I'm a Lutheran, or I'm a Protestant, or I'm a Catholic. But they had no concern or care for what their faith was or what it taught. You know, maybe they went to church on Sundays, but even that was a stretch. Generally speaking, they took the title, and that was about it. Whereas we, as a Muslim family were, again, very devoted in our practice. I had read the entire Quran by the age of five in Arabic, a language I could recite but couldn't understand and I had memorized the last seven chapters of the Qur'an, and we regularly talked about Islam, about Muhammad and Allah. I would start my day by praying to Allah. I would say, in Arabic, a little prayer, Alhamdulillah, hilladhi ahiyyana ba'dama amartana wa I'd say that every morning upon waking up. And what it means is, all praise belongs to the one who gives me life, causes me to die, and raises me up again. So, here's a prayer thanking God for life and for thanking him for waking me up every single day. That's what my life was like as a Muslim, whereas the average Christian friend that I had never gave God a moment's thought during their day, and that was the difference between me and my supposedly Christian friends.
1: Oh, what, what kind of impact did that have upon you?
2: Well, Muslims are taught that Christianity is a false religion. They're taught that, you know, Jesus is never God, never claimed to be God, that the Trinity is blasphemy, that the Bible is corrupt. That's how we saw Christianity, as devout Muslims. At least that's the popular understanding of Christianity amongst devout Muslims. And it was verified by my discussions with Christians. I would see that they didn't have the slightest clue how to explain the Trinity or, or to, how to tell me why the Bible was reliable. And so by interacting with the people who called themselves Christians around me, I didn't know any better who was a real Christian who wasn't. They were all calling themselves Christian. And so by interacting with them, I was confirmed in my perception of Christianity.
1: That's often, you know, a response I get from a lot of my Muslim friends that I talk with who interact with, fortunately, you know, a lot of Christians in the West. Well, your father taught you, as you stated in your biography here, Islamic apologetics as you were growing up. And Tell us about your training. How were you trained and what kind of things were you trained in?
2: Well, you know, as a child growing up in the West, which Muslims often see the West as a Christian region, uh, that the United States is a Christian nation. That's how they see things, because in the Middle East and in Islamic lands, those are Islamic countries. As far as Muslims are concerned, these are areas that are Islamic, generally speaking. And so, when they come to the West, they expect the same thing. Well, what do you have? You have Westerners who are taking the title Christian, but then they're dressing inappropriately. They are fornicating. There's adultery. There's divorces. There's drunkenness. And so Muslims who come from Muslim lands to the United States and who don't develop relationships here, they maintain those false preconceptions about the West and about Christianity. They assume Christianity has caused the immorality in the West. And so raising their children then, they will say, make sure that you are defended against Christianity. We have to be sure that you know why Christianity is false and why Islam is true. So if you go to a Middle Eastern country or a Muslim country, generally speaking, the Muslims there aren't as equipped in apologetics, with a few exceptions, like Pakistan and Bangladesh. You have Muslims who are just Muslim. They're not really thinking about the apologetic stuff. But when they come to the West, now they have to defend their kids. Now they have to make sure their culture is preserved. And so growing up, my parents would tell me, Nabil, recite to us who is the wife of the Prophet, the first wife, who was the the best friend of the Prophet who accepted Islam first, or what year, how old was Muhammad when he was called to prophethood? You know, these kinds of questions, they would drill us. And at the same time, they would ask us questions like, how do we know that Christianity is false. Why do Christians believe what they believe, and how do you know that the Bible is corrupt? And they would ask us these kinds of questions. And I'm talking about just on a family trip, going from our home to our uncle's home. I have a friend in Michigan who's a former Muslim, he's a former Shia, who's now a full-time Christian apologist. He says this is a part of the academy of the American Muslim home. It's just what people learn.
1: You know, you explained to us just briefly, but tell us a little bit more. The religious conversations you'd have, especially with your Christian friends, generally, how did they play out?
2: Well, you know, it was uh, depended on the context. Now, I can tell you a story of a young girl who approached me when I was a junior in high school. She was kind of the token Christian in our grade. She represented Christ. She wore a smile on her face all the time and was ready to tell people about her faith wherever she went. Beautiful heart. And one day she asked me if I knew Jesus. And my response to her was, yes, yes, I know Jesus. The Quran tells me all about him. The Quran tells me that he is virgin-born. The Quran tells me that he's able to cure the leprous and the blind and raise the dead. That he is the Messiah who's going to come back at the end of times. These are all things that the Quran teaches me, but I also know that Jesus never claimed to be God. And at that point, she would say, no, the deity of Christ is a part of our faith. It's actually an extremely important part of our faith. And so I challenge her, how could you possibly believe Jesus is God when he says things like, he doesn't know when the end of times is. Uh, He says in Mark chapter 13, no one knows when the end of times is, not the angels nor the Son, but only the Father. So you're telling me that Jesus says God knows when the end of times is, and he himself does not know when the end of times is, but you still think he's God? And in providing these challenges, I wasn't asking any trick questions. I was just referring to Bible verses that I had been told about in the mosque and by my family and in books that I had read, which challenged the deity of Christ. And generally speaking, I never received a good answer.
1: You know, those are some of the things that I bring up when I'm teaching the cults class or world religions classes. And and like you, the vast majority of Christians really are unable to address some of those challenging verses that you brought up.
2: Absolutely. And uh, either they haven't thought of it, or they've felt that it would be inappropriate for them to ask questions. For one reason or another, the average Christian hasn't explored these issues, and once it's brought to them, uh, they're ill-equipped to answer
1: them. Yeah, that's why I tell my students constantly, you know, to be engaging the non-Christian world. And if they bring up questions that you can't answer, you know, that's great. It's going to inspire you to further study and really learn the word
2: amen as long as you remember that jesus is the way the truth and the life we should never be afraid of exploring truth matters and if we have any doubts or concerns if we have real faith that doesn't mean ignoring our doubts it means believing that jesus is the truth and exploring those doubts to find him
1: that's great you know but one of the friendships you talk about and the conversation about religions that happened in that friendship really changed your life young man named David you met at the university. Tell us how you became friends.
2: Yeah, we were on the same team, the public speaking and debate team, and he was reading his Bible one day, and I had never seen anyone read their Bible in their free time. I'd never seen anyone pull out a Bible except in church, and so I had been given a lot of instruction, arguments that the Bible had been corrupted, that it wasn't trustworthy. And so I challenged him when I saw him reading the Bible. I said, you realize that book you're holding is not trustworthy. And instead of becoming defensive or running from the conversation, he closed the book and he looked at me and he said, well, go on. (laughs) What are you saying? What's your argument here? And I gave him the best I had. And what I didn't know about David was that he had been an atheist almost his whole life. And he had accepted Christ about six years earlier when someone had explained reasons for his faith to David. And so he was able to show me why the Bible was reliable. He told me all about the field of textual criticism, about the early biblical manuscripts, and he just made a case for the reliability of the Bible. And from that point onwards, I I didn't believe him, I didn't agree with him, but I thought, well, if I'm going to dialogue with anyone, it's going to be this guy. And so I kept challenging him. I'd go study and find more challenges. I brought every single argument I could over the following few years, but he knew that if he looked for the answers, he would find them. And so over years of conversation with him on issues like the reliability of the Bible, the death of Christ on the cross, the resurrection. I had all my questions explored and answers provided, and that made all the difference.
1: Well, Nabil, you know, you have a new book out which documents your journey titled Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And there are several key elements of Islam which you began to question. Let's start first with the Quran. Can you explain how the Quran and the Hadith differ from the Christian Bible?
2: Yes. Now the Bible as we know it is the Old Testament and the New Testament, 39 and 27 books respectively, written by multiple authors over a long period of time. The Quran is not like that. The Quran is a book by one person, written over approximately 23 years. And that one book is written patchwork. It's not written beginning to end. There were certain portions of it that were composed at one time, certain portions at another. And after Muhammad died, it was all brought together into one volume so written in a very different way the voice is very different the method of reading it is very different you don't do exegesis the same way at all whereas with the Bible for example if you want to figure out what John is saying in John chapter 5 you want to read the whole book of John and you want to understand John's overarching emphases and his points and his themes that keep appearing you can't do that with the Quran because it wasn't written from beginning to end, it was written in patchwork. And so instead of going to surrounding verses to understand the meaning of the Quran, you generally go to Hadith. Now the Hadith are a collection of sayings and deeds of Muhammad. And so depending on which book you're reading, Sahih al-Bukhari, Sahih al-Muslim, Sunan Abu Dawud. And so as Protestant Christians have a phrase, sola scriptura, that the authority comes from the scripture what we believe, our faith, our doctrine, it all comes from Scripture. That's not true for Muslims. They believe that the Quran must be complemented by the Hadith. That's where the vast majority of Islamic life comes from. How many prayers do you pray per day? Five? Well, that number's not found in the Quran, it's found in the Hadith. What words do you say when you pray the five daily prayers? those words are found in the Hadith. How do you do your ritual cleansing, etc., etc., etc. Almost all of Islamic law comes from Hadith. The Quran is used as a primary foundation, but must be supplemented by Hadith.
1: Yeah, and that's important for Christians to understand, because the Quran by itself is quite difficult to understand. It's like uh, coming into the middle of a conversation and trying to figure out what's going on. And and when you kind of figure it out, it kind of changes topics.
2: Exactly, exactly, and that has to do with the manner in which it was composed.
1: Now, there are questions and teachings in the Quran you said you came to question. What were some of those teachings that you struggled with?
2: Some of the primary teachings that I struggled with had to do with the treatment of women. Now, at first, it wasn't really a problem for me. At first, when I was a Muslim um, and I had seen some of these verses, it didn't really bother me. We know, for example, that Muhammad married Aisha at a very young age which the age isn't recorded in the Qur'an per se, but you do have references to Aisha in the Qur'an. That was something that bothered people around me because he supposedly married her when he was 49 years old and she was 6. They waited for consummation. The consummation was when he was 52 and she was 9. But all the same, that was something that really bothered people. And there seems to be an indication in the Qur'an that men can be married to prepubescent women. so to girls who haven't yet hit puberty. When that was shown to me, I rationalized it. I tried to find a way around it. And, you know, when you have one issue you're dealing with, it's not too hard to rationalize that one issue. But then there were other things that kept coming up in the Quran, scientific inaccuracies, multiple scientific inaccuracies. That slowly added up. But if there was one thing that was like dynamite, it is this phrase that you find in the Quran. It says, allowed for you are your wives... And those whom your right hands possess. Those whom your right hands possess. What does that mean? What is that about? Uh, And as you start reading through the Quran and the Hadith, you find out fairly quickly that this is a phrase referring to female captives. At the time of Muhammad, women were sometimes taken as spoils of war. At other times, women were bought as slaves uh, and used as servants. What this verse is saying is that you can use your female captives and slaves for sexual gratification. Now, the context, as I said, is found in the Hadith, and you find context in Sahih al-Bukhari, Sunan ibn Majah, you find it in Sahih al-Muslim. As you look through these books of Hadith and what the context is, you find out that some of these women, their husbands were still alive. They had just been captured on the battlefield. You had some who were impregnated and sold into slavery afterwards, and all the same, Muhammad was fine with his warriors having sexual intercourse with these women. In fact, the Quran seems to not just say it's okay, but seems to encourage it. In chapter 4, verse 24. And so, that was something I saw as completely unconscionable. There was no way, in my conception of who God is, that he would ever allow women who've just been captured to be used for sexual intercourse and then impregnated and sold into slavery, especially if their husbands were still alive, and yet that's something we have recorded in Islamic history, and that was certainly a tipping point for me.
1: You know, a lot of people here in the West don't know that history of Islam or their readings, and they may be sitting there going, no way, you're really exaggerating or you're twisting the truth here. What response would you give to them?
2: And that, I would say it's exactly what I thought when I first heard these arguments. That's exactly what I thought. I so said, there's no way. But then you read verses like 424 in the Quran. There's two others. I cite these in my book that talk about those whom your right hands possess. Then you read the Hadith in the most trustworthy books of Hadith. Uh, we're not talking about random books. We're talking about the ones that Muslims go to as their gold standard. And you read about those whom your right hands possess. And it's incontrovertibly there. It's in the Qur'an, it's in all the levels of the major books of Hadith, and it's in the Islamic history as well. So what can you actually believe about Islam? What basis do you have left? If we eviscerate these, as well as others, there are plenty more, accounts of Muhammad that we don't like from the sources, then why can we trust what's left?
1: Yes. And so that's what I tell a lot of my Muslim friends, you know, who say, oh, no, that can't be true. You know, we usually tell them, go back to the original source, which uh, you document well in your book.
2: Right. And that's what I've noticed. The vast majority of Muslims haven't seen this stuff. They don't know it's there. And of course, they're they're not going to learn about it in the mosque. They're not going to learn about it from their parents. They'd have to have the wherewithal and the impetus to look up these arguments or to have a friend who presents them to them and then to go forward and investigate and that's a rare combination of circumstances
1: yeah because you know we're presented here in the West how Islam values women and exalts women how these men took these wives to take care of them and protect them because their husbands had been killed in the war or things like that. So it was an act of mercy. It was an act of grace that these men would take these women in and protect them from living a single life and things like that. Those are some of the things we are taught here, a perspective that is not consistent with what you're saying is in the Quran and the Hadith.
2: Exactly. All you have to do is pull out one Hadith, I believe it's Sahih Muslim. If it's not, it's Sahih al-Bukhari, which is even stronger, which says that we could still hear their husbands, who were prisoners of war, moaning we could hear them in the distance, yet we asked Muhammad if we could use these women and he still, he still agreed. So it, it simply doesn't work as an explanation. So, and, and that's exactly right. Just show them the hadith, show them. You know, and, and that's one thing. How do we present this information without offending our friends? you have to have built that bridge of relationship first. And they have to know that they can trust you and that you love them and that you're not trying to tear them down because that's how it's going to feel when you present these arguments.
0: We've run out of time for today. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio broadcast. This concludes part one of Pat's interview with former Muslim Nabil Qureshi. Evidence & Answers relies on the generous donations from you, our listeners. If you would like to team with us, please start with prayer. And then to donate, please log on to our website at evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence & Answers is brought to you by our key sponsor, Highland Capital Management, providing investors with alternative investment solutions for more than 20 years. To learn more, visit them online at hcmlp.com. Join us here next week for part two of this exciting interview with your host, Dr. Pat Zucran.